0: We're going to consider the teaching of God's word as summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 51 this afternoon. will read Lord's Day 51, question and answer 126. What is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, that is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us. As we also find this evidence of your grace in us, that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins is truly at the heart of God's covenant mercy to his people. It's at the heart of the gospel message that we believe and are called to proclaim to the world. Their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more, is at uh, the center of the new covenant promise Uh, that we have fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in verse 12 of 1 John 2, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And uh, certainly, however we may understand these classifications given here uh, in terms of the address to little children and then to fathers and to young men, certainly little children uh, describes all of God's people. And uh, we are assured of the forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. So all Christians are forgiven all their sins. Uh, that's what justification involves. Just as if I had uh, neither committed nor had any sins, but rather had fulfilled all righteousness, the holiness and The satisfaction and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us as our own. And we are accepted in the beloved. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this forgiveness is not something that is to then be taken for granted as if sin is itself no longer an issue whatsoever in the Christian life. As if being justified, uh, there's no longer any need for the confession of sin or uh, no longer any need for ongoing forgiveness. And this is clearly taught in the fifth petition where our Lord Jesus Christ has taught us to pray right along with our, our daily prayers for bread, to pray daily for the forgiveness of sins. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We not only know that God has been gracious to pardon and accept us in the Beloved by his mere grace. But as Christians, we live on that grace daily, even as we still do fall far short of a God's glory. Not that we fall back into a state of condemnation. Not that Christians ever uh, relate to God merely as their judge. No, he is our Father for Christ's sake. But though we do not fall back into a state of condemnation, we do fall into sins. uh, Sins that do defile us and uh, would disrupt our fellowship with our Father unless we continually come to his throne of grace for mercy uh, and for help as we struggle with sin. In Micah chapter 7 verse 18, we have this wonderful declaration of God's uh, character and grace in these words Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the rem- remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And that's a, a declaration, a revelation of God's character and the wonder of his grace that uh, is always sweet to a believer. We never get past our, our need for uh, this grace of God. We never get past our delight in, in his mercy revealed in Jesus Christ. It's a theme of, of praise for our entire lives. And we want to see that in this, uh, this Lord's Day, that God's grace is continuously displayed in forgiveness. God's grace is continually displayed in forgiveness. And we want to begin by focusing upon the fact that this request that our Lord Jesus taught us, this petition that God would forgive us our sins, is a request that God commands us to make. Uh, You may recall how the introduction to the Lord's Prayer is given in question and answer uh, 118 in terms of what kinds of things are we to pray for, and we confess that we are to pray for all that God has commanded us to ask. And The forgiveness of sins is among those things that God has commanded us to ask. When you pray, Jesus said, say, and then he gave us the Lord's Prayer. A prayer that is not only the perfect model and pattern for our prayers, but uh, a prayer that is to be known and prayed as taught by our Lord Jesus with such petitions as, forgive us our sins. That doesn't mean that these very words must be Uh, Spoken every day in the same way. But we are given a command to request the forgiveness of sins. And we ought to hear that command as itself a revelation of God's grace. He doesn't simply give us the freedom or the liberty or the option. He commands us to pray for forgiveness. God commands all men everywhere to repent. We read that in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Wherever the message of the gospel reaches, it comes with a command to repent. And we ought not to think that that is a a command to uh, somehow just feel guilty and bad and feel judged and condemned and just stay there. No, the command to repent is a command to change your mind about God, to change your mind about yourself. Yes, to feel bad about your sins, but to turn away from them and turn to God, and to turn to God believing that he is merciful and gracious, that there is provisions in him for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the command to repent implies that all people should seek God's mercy. And that implies that God is willing to show mercy to all those who call upon him. We ought not to hesitate to affirm that, to be clear on it. God is willing to show mercy to all who seek his grace in Christ. We're not concerned here with God's secret counsel, but with his clearly revealed will that sinners should avail themselves of God's provision. And that's why the gospel always comes with a kind of authority, a gracious authority that reaches every individual with God's claim upon them and God's command to them to turn to him and believe that he is a God of love and mercy as revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So no one is excused or justified in saying, oh no, this message is not for me. That's true of the unbelievers in the world. It's true of those who might say, well, my sins are just too great. I could never be forgiven. I practice horrible sins in secret. I am guilty of things in my past that just bring me beyond the pale of forgiveness. Or there are those, even within the church, who might say to themselves, I've been a hypocrite for 40, 50 years. I've played along, but I know that I don't have a relationship with God. I'm such a hypocrite, I'm beyond hope. I can't expect forgiveness. I can't expect a change at this stage in my life. Or I've sinned against light. I've sinned against privilege. I know so much and I haven't believed it, I haven't lived it. Yeah, forgiveness of sins, maybe for others, but not for me, not for a hypocrite like I am. Besides, maybe I'm probably not even elect. You see, those are the kinds of, those are the kinds of considerations that can keep uh, some people thinking to themselves that uh, the gospel command, the gospel offer, is not for them. But none of those excuses, none of those reasons stand up before the simplicity of God's command. God commands all men everywhere to repent. And none of these considerations excuse anyone from taking that seriously for themselves. And isn't that true of us as God's children? You see, this command of our Lord Jesus removes an obstacle that sometimes we might put in the way of repentance. If you're a, if you're a guilty of some sin and you're ashamed and you feel the disgust and the uh, the sense of shame, you may think that you need some time. You may you may think that God needs some time. That you need some time, perhaps uh, to. To, to get over the sense of, of shame. Your conscience has been bloodied and you feel too guilty to think about forgiveness yet at this point. Maybe, maybe after a while, maybe you're, when, if, if you are somehow able to uh, attain a, a holier frame of mind, or maybe after you've beaten yourself up for long enough, after you've punished yourself significantly, sufficiently, or maybe after you've cleaned up your act for long enough to show that you really are repentant. And you see, these are the kinds of things that, for Christians, can keep the grace of God and the assurance of forgiveness for them now at arm's length, right? Isn't that what the psalmist did? When I kept guilty silence, my strength was spent with grief. Your hand was heavy on me, my soul found no relief. But when I owned transgression, then thou forgavest me. When I made confession, right, then there was forgiveness. We can't clean ourselves up. We can't make ourselves worthy of repentance. We can't sanctify us sufficiently to think we deserve it. We are to come to God in the reality of our need and believe that God calls us to him, and to turn to him and to pray, forgive me, Father, I have sinned, and to do so with confidence. Now, of course, this command also teaches us to take heart the reality of our need. I met a man, or I talked to him, he's uh, uh, married to a cousin of mine. Uh, about a year and a half ago, and I had a conversation with him, and he's fallen under the spell of false teaching. He belongs to some so-called apostolic group who denies the need for ongoing forgiveness of sins. And uh, he, quoted, he quoted 1 John. Uh, so No, I, 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 I actually quoted it myself, where it says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. He says, oh, yeah. He says, I'm not saying I have not sinned. I used to sin. I'm not saying I have not sinned. I've sinned, but I'm forgiven. But thankfully, I had recently read this, and I knew enough to go back a few verses, and it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It's not simply a matter of acknowledging that we have sinned in the past. It's a matter of recognizing that we have sinned, that we do fall short of God's glory, Poor sinners that we are. Or what's the language here? Uh, Wretched sinners. right? That's how how we confess our sins. As wretched sinners. As those who are spiritually uh, impoverished in ourselves. Destitute. So that we can say with the Apostle Paul that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. Whatever good thing there is. Whatever, whatever holy thoughts or desires, whatever goodness doesn't come from myself. That which is flesh is flesh. That's why people must be born again in ourselves. We're nothing but flesh. We're nothing but sin. And you might say, well, I, it's true, but if only I felt that more. If I, if I only had a, an adequate conviction of sin, then I would have some confidence that uh, my heart is sufficiently humbled and tender and I can believe that forgiveness is f- for me. But I, I, I just really don't feel my sin the way, I, the way I ought to. No kidding. That's right. You can't name all your sins. If you were to try to thoroughly confess every last sin that you've committed in one day, you wouldn't be able to do it. And that's to say nothing of this constant, this continuous inclination towards sin. Right? There is the actual sins that we commit. And then there is our original sin that we confess. The evil which still clings to us. In church. Always. Always. If we think that we have to have some adequate, sufficient knowledge of our sin that then somehow gives us the right or makes us humble enough to expect that God would be for gracious to us, we're making our own uh, repentance a condition for our forgiveness in a way that really involves a kind of works-righteousness. Of course, we have to acknowledge the reality of our sin. And repentance means that we take it very, very seriously. And we're willing to judge it according to God's word. We're willing to accept the verdict of God's word that I really deserve hell. I may not feel that. Sometimes I might. It's not a kind of feeling that that any of us would want to live with. But we know from the teaching of God's word that we deserve God's judgment. He would be entirely just if he had left us in our sin like this lost world. We know that we need forgiveness. But the depths of that knowledge is really not the point when it comes to the grounds of our forgiveness. God knows all our sins far better than we do. And he commands us to say, Father, forgive me for my sins. So you see, there's grace, isn't isn't there, in this command. Let's consider, secondly, the mercy that God promises to give. Can't take the time to read that chapter that I refer to in Micah. It's a chapter that really gives a a list of, of charges against God's people. A people who brought forth no wholesome fruit, verse 1. A people in which there are few, if any, faithful men left, verse 2. A people characterized by violence and treachery, corruption of its authorities, verse 3. Family breakdown, verses 5 and 6. All the kinds of things that we would uh, condemn in the society about us. things that bring judgment. But judgment is not the final word. In verse 14, God says he's going to do marvelous things among them, like when Israel was delivered out of Egypt by grace through the blood of a lamb. And it's in this connection that we hear this marvelous conclusion in verse 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and Passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. In Hebrews 8, of these covenant promises, these new covenant promises, concludes with the statement, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to be merciful towards their iniquities. He's going to tread them underfoot. He's going to to make atonement for them. But he's going to uh, be merciful to sinners despite their iniquities. And he's going to deal with them such that he will remember them no more. That's the mercy that God promises to give and give and give. 1 John declares uh, the basis for that, for that covenant mercy. And that is in Jesus Christ the righteous. Righteous to stand on our behalf before the Father as our advocate, as our defense. with a a plea that prevails with God. He is not only righteous in his advocacy on our behalf, he is uh, righteous to offer himself as the spotless lamb without blemish, the one whose blood cleanses us uh, from sin. He is the propitiation for our sin. He took upon himself the guilt of our sin and suffered God's wrath and judgment against our sin in his own person. He pacified God's anger against us by his sacrifice. That's what propitiation means. That's what the world rebels against. That's what they call cosmic child abuse. No, we believe that is a demonstration of the righteousness of God in a way of saving love. He gave his only begotten Son and his only begotten Son willingly came and took our place to satisfy God's demands for judgment so that God may be just without compromising his justice and yet be the justifier of them who believe in Jesus. He is righteous to clothe us with all his perfect obedience. in place of the imputation of our sins. Blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Rather, his righteousness is imputed to us, put to our account. God, who delights in mercy, delights to glorify his Son in the continuous overflow of grace for his sake. We must never think that God somehow begrudgingly forgives our sins as if he's somehow the loser by it. No. God is glorified in the forgiveness of sins because the Lord Jesus Christ is magnified in his accomplishment for us. Now, shouldn't that give us boldness and confidence in being honest with ourselves about our sins? Shouldn't that move us also to hate our sins and to seek to flee from them as recipients of such grace? So pray with confidence in this abundant redemption in Christ. You know that God killed all the firstborn in Egypt. They were consecrated to him. Consecrated uh, to his judgment. The the Old Testament language has a word that speaks of, of consecration to judgment. And that was the case with all the firstborn of Egypt. And he delivered Israel, whom he calls his firstborn son. And you know how he delivered Israel through the blood of the Passover lamb that was uh, spread on the doorposts of their homes by which they were spared. And then we're taught that... uh, Every firstborn, every little, literal firstborn among God's people were to be consecrated to God. They are to be holy in a special way as, the, as God's uh, firstborn, the, the literal firstborn of every Israelite. But you know what God did? He took the Levites as representatives of all the firstborn. So the Levites were specially consecrated to God in a kind of one-for-one consecration. They had to count all the firstborn of of Israel and then count all the Levites and see, is there enough? One for one representation. And it turned out that there were more firstborn than Levites. And so those that were left over, they had to pay money so that they might be redeemed. But in that sense, the Levites, in a, in a, in a manner, were, were also a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. But with a great difference, right? Jesus not, is not a one-for-one one substitute. If that were the case, well, then there would only be one redeemed sinner. Jesus is not a one-for-ten substitute or a a one-for-a-hundred substitute. He's not a a one-for-a-thousand substitute. He's not a a one-for-a-million substitute. He's not a one for any number because it's a multitude which no man can number that will appear before the throne of God. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world so that people from every Every tribe, every nation, every culture, every language, may come to this great God and say, Father, forgive me for my sins, for Christ's sake, because there is abundant redemption in him. This is the mercy that God promises to us. This is the mercy by which we live. This is the mercy that we proclaim and celebrate. This is the mercy that we uh, rely upon daily, also as it's expressed in our request for the forgiveness of our sins. And that leads us finally to consider the grace God works in us toward others. We pray forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. How does this grace that we've been considering affect you? You see, grace cannot be truly known without producing uh, an impact. And uh, producing an impact that is significant enough to provide evidence that it's really gotten through. Evidence of its power. We read in uh, 1 John 2, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word. In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. The idea of saying, I know God, the idea of saying, I walk in the light, while denying that by our conduct, by our lives, it just doesn't doesn't fly, so to speak, doesn't work. There's no corroborating evidence that the message really got through. Wherever grace enters, there is is evidence. Outward evidence, right? That's indicated in the language of walk, conduct. Christians live differently than unbelievers. It's also evident inwardly in in the attitudes of the heart. We might call them the B attitudes, right? The attitudes, like poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and being peacemakers, and being meek. Now, none of us shows those those, uh, inward characteristics perfectly, but they're genuinely present in the lives of true Christians. The grace of God affects us inwardly. Grace produces a gracious disposition. How could someone delight in mercy, in God's mercy, and not not delight to show mercy? How can we become like a God who delights in mercy and not come to imitate him in some way and walk in love even as God has loved us? You see, that's the underlying argument. That's the underlying assumption of this, the language of of this petition. And it zeroes in on the fact that a forgiving heart is a primary evidence of grace. Evidence, right? That's the language that our confession uses. Do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of your grace in us. That we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. Wholeheartedly don't agonize over what that means either, right? Is your whole heart in it? Absolutely. Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, there's a sense in which Christians do, sincerely and genuinely, never perfectly. And so even this language, wholeheartedly, you know, we can't torment ourselves over over the exact Meaning of that in such a way as to, again, focus on ourselves. It has to do with being sincere and real and genuine. Your heart has to be in it. Our catechism speaks of a kind of determination of mind and will. That means that forgiving others also is a matter of choice. It's a kind of a determination of mind and will. Feelings fluctuate. They go up and down. You might have to fight against the return of resentment. Thoughts of revenge may again enter your mind. And you have to fight them and resist them with determination. Practice this grace of forgiveness by talking to yourself and remembering our Lord's command to practice such forgiveness in our relationship with others. Now, that doesn't always mean reconciliation, does it? Forgiveness ideally involves a coming together where the past is forgotten and forgiven on both sides. Sometimes that's that's not impossible, or that's quite impossible. Sometimes people will not acknowledge their fault whatsoever sometimes people will not accept your forgiveness, but to continue to communicate that they dislike you or hate you or don't wanna be around you at all forever. Or they continue to show you that they consider you an enemy. Well, then the, the, the ideal of forgiveness in terms of reconciliation and peace, that's not achieved. But we can still have a forgiving heart. We can still resist thoughts of revenge. We can still fight against bitterness. We can still love our enemies. If they show themselves to be enemies, then Jesus says, love them. Pray for them. Do good to them. So it it, uh, certainly means rejecting hate. It does mean putting on love for Christ's sake. It does mean forgiving others when they ask, when they ask for forgiveness, when they acknowledge their fault. And let me say also, it's not just my opinion, but don't be over-vagorous in discerning the genuineness of the repentance of others. Don't set yourself up as a judge in that way. God doesn't give you that burden. It's better to err on the side of graciousness. It's better to err on the side of giving them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, that apology, that was pretty weak, but... I may forgive them. Run the risk of being too gracious. Run the risk of being too obedient. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus says if your brother sins against you and repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and says, I repent, forgive him. Now, you, Jesus is exaggerating. He often uses hyperbole, right? This is a very unlikely situation. What about three times in a year? What about three times in a year someone says, You know, I've done it again, I'm really sorry? Forgive him. Don't say, well, yeah, you said that twice already. No more. I'm done with it. No more forgiveness. Forgive your brother, forgive your sister, unless it would be sin to. Don't worry about being too obedient. Jesus said, forgive him. So I may do that with confidence that Jesus told me to do it. Don't forgive him if it'd be sin. Now, you recognize I'm being a bit facetious. It's not likely to happen. No fully determined to honor God's grace this way, this grace of forgiveness to us. It must work the grace of forgiveness in us toward others. It must. It must. If we really know this grace, it will. You know, I I fear And we could go through passages in scripture that justify this kind of fear. I fear that there are a lot of people that are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and they're going to be shocked and dismayed that they're not given entry into his presence because they lived with an unforgiving heart towards others. They were religious, maybe they were dutiful, but they harbored unforgiveness It was a characteristic of their inner life. They didn't resist it. They didn't fight it. Now, what's the problem? Is the problem, oh, they messed up here. This is where they met. No, the problem is they didn't understand grace. The problem is they never really were gripped with the mercy of God to them as a sinner. Forgiven such a load of guilt that doesn't compare with the sins that others have committed against us. So the problem is not, oh, they messed up on that one. No, the problem is they really didn't get it. Because the knowledge of grace must make people gracious. Because they know the forgiveness of God. And they want to show it. They want to. As far as they can. And you see, that magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ. That glorifies a God of grace who delights in mercy. He delights to show it. He delights to, to, to see it in those that have been restored to his image. So forgive others as you have been forgiven. No qualifications, full stop, period. Amen.